We pointed out that the first chapter of Jeremiah is, in fact, a dialogue, a narrative dialogue between the Lord God and the prophet Jeremiah himself. His prophetic call, and particularly his commission with respect to the message he's to proclaim. Now, chapter 2 is also a dialogue, only this time the Lord is in dialogue with the nation, the nation of Israel slash Judah. And the focus of this dialogue is the rupture in the marital relationship, which is actually the frame of this unit from chapter 2, verse 2, to chapter 3, verse 5. We have this ruptured marital bond, namely the adultery of idolatry. So as we have uh, examined in the previous uh, meetings, we looked at idolatry in the book of Jeremiah in general and in this second chapter in particular as far as the, shall we say, the theology of idolatry and the psychology of idolatry. And this evening we want to look at the bondage of idolatry and look at uh, the detail of verses 13 to chapter 2 through chapter 5 verse, chapter 3 verse 5. Now you will notice uh, in this chapter there is no eschatology. Um, The eschatology will come in the third chapter. And that we will take up in our next meeting, uh, which will also be our last meeting for this uh, semester. But on this side of Palm Sunday and also uh, Good Friday and Easter, we understand the eschatology of Jeremiah, which is the eschatology of the last Jeremiah. Namely, it is the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the resolution uh, to the narrative dissolution and tension uh, in the nation as he is in the sorrow and lament of the prophet himself as he is in the need of his people who are bound by their own sins and the sins of their generation And one of the besetting sins of this generation is certainly idolatry, though it is not specifically, in every case, the idolatry of statues or icons. Nonetheless, it is the idolatry of power and personality and narcissism, etc. All right, so let's begin then with the 13th verse there of the second chapter. And the question, what are the two evils which are specified in that verse? And since you're a select audience, I will start with K. What are the two evils? First, they have forsaken God. um, And notice what he's called there. Living water. Very good. And they've gone after their own... Uh, cisterns broken that have no water. Very good. Now, the two elements there, the forsaking God, the fountain of living waters, and cutting out for themselves 
cisterns, but particular kind of cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water and are useless. As we look at this in terms of what we've learned about uh, Hebrew parallelism, namely that pattern of what is A and what is more B, we have what is A, they have forsaken me, and what is more B, they have hewn for themselves broken cisterns. Now, this, of course, is not a what is A and what is more than A or better than A, B. This is uh, what is bad, namely they've forsaken me, and what is even worse than bad, they've uh, uh, constructed broken cisterns for themselves. Now, as you hold your finger there in that uh, second chapter, turn over to chapter 17 for a moment. I've put it on your outline, but I want you to see this verse, (coughs) chapter 17, verse 13. And Loretta, if you have it, would you read it for us? Good. And who is speaking there in that verse? Who do you think, Loretta? Jeremiah is speaking. All right, so notice the interesting relationship between the occurrence and the only occurrence of that phrase, fountain of living waters. It occurs twice in the book of Jeremiah. As you notice in chapter 2, who is speaking? Loretta was speaking in chapter 2. The Lord is speaking in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, God himself is speaking and designating himself the fountain of living waters. And in chapter 17, the prophet is speaking, designating the Lord the fountain of living waters. We've noticed this reciprocity. We've noticed this dialogic reflection in this book already. And here is a parallel reciprocity as God designates himself, so does the prophet Jeremiah designate him. It's a very neat uh, mirror reflection of uh, God's own character, uh, Jeremiah picking it up and reflecting it. Now, this phrase, uh, fountain of living water or uh, spring of living water, not only occurs here in Jeremiah. Uh, Terry, where else does it occur in the Bible? Does it it ring a bell with you? Yes, in the New Testament. Yes, good. What book of the New Testament? Robert, can you help him out? Not right off the top of my head. John, and what what story in the Gospel of John? Back to you, Robert. It seems to me Jesus was... uh, Oh, I know the... uh, when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman. Yes, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He says that he has living water. And then it occurs one more time in the Gospel of John. Where is that? You know, Cheryl? There's one more story in John's Gospel, okay? Loretta? We have to ask Pete. Chapter 7. Chapter 7. What incident? It is uh, Pete. Jesus said, Feast of Tabernacles. Very good. Go ahead, Pete. Were you going to say something more? 
Awesome. Okay, all right, okay. So, Jesus picks up on the phrase also in the New Testament. What is this, what is this language or what is this idiom, living waters? Terry, back to you. Why does he say living waters? In contrast to what kind of waters? Non-living. Well, all right, but, but what, what's, what's behind this uh, metaphor? Well, he is, he is uh, life. He is eternal life. Good, he is. He is life. He is eternal life. The riches of it imply that God is the source of all of that, the fountain, the origin. Very good. But living water besides life, besides eternal life, what's behind this use of this, uh, this phrase? Constantly renewable or... That's a good thought. Yes, it is. All right, notice the contrast in, the, in this 13th verse. Water in a cistern. Is that living water? No. Why? Stagnant. You're right. Stagnant. It's right. stagnant. So the living water is? Flowing water. Flowing water. It's running water. Right. So this living water is water which is in process of motion. Okay, it's actively flowing. So it's not sitting around stagnant, getting uh, scum on the top of it, uh, getting algae growing on it, and becoming increasingly polluted, etc. All right, so the, the image of living water carries this notion of motion, notion of motion, okay? Uh, I didn't even come up with that. Uh, <laughs> I didn't plan that, as, uh, or, in other words. All right, so Jesus is, is uh, also building on this language in using it because of the running water that was coming from him, not the water that's standing in the well at Samaria, and the woman uh, being uh, offered that uh, <coughs> source of that stream, that flowing stream. And as a result, uh, we have a, a, a useful image here of something which is not stagnant. All right, now, in verse 14, the question is raised, is Israel... Uh, slave. Now, notice the context. The context of this chapter is Israel slash Judah's bondage to idolatry. So here the question is Israel a slave? What's the point of raising that question here? Is this a reversal? If is it a reversal, what would you think of? Harry? Egypt? Yes, very good. The reverse paradigm here of is Israel like she once was? Is she a slave as she was in bondage to Egypt? So remember that we talked in the first chapter and actually in the second chapter as well as this reverse Redemptive historical paradigm of Israel, Judah in Jeremiah's day, 7th century B.C., being turned back, being uh, being flipped back, reverted back to her status as a slave nation, a nation in bondage. So here is a hint that uh, God himself is raising that question about whether she has in fact reverted to her uh, uh, status as she was in the land of Egypt. 
Right, verse 15, before we uh, talk about the lion image or the young lions there, uh, notice that in their roaring they have laid cities, they have destroyed cities rather, and they have laid a land waste. Now here the issue is what's the historical reflection? Okay? Why? Now, this is in Jeremiah's time, right? Has Jerusalem been laid waste yet? I don't think so. No, it has not. Has the nation of Judah been destroyed yet? No. No, it hasn't. All right, so this is referring to something that's in the past. And Loretta, what would that be? Not the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. Harry? Israel. Israel and her capital. Right. Samaria. Samaria. Very good. It's Israel and Samaria. So the land that is laid waste is the northern kingdom of Israel, which is already in the past. When did that happen, Terry? What was the date for the destruction of the northern kingdom, Robert? I'm thinking 800 something. No. 722. And when is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? You're our date master here tonight, Kay. When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? It's 586. 586. All right, so we're obviously on the other side of 586, but he's looking back to 722. And who destroyed Israel and Samaria? Loretta? Assyria. Assyria, very good. And who's going to destroy Jerusalem and Judah? Assyria. Assyria? No, who's Nebuchadnezzar king of? Babylon. The Babylonians are going to destroy Jerusalem. So we have two different nations coming uh, into the picture here. All right, so he's looking back to the destruction of the northern kingdom. The ten tribes carried off. By the Assyrians, 722, Samaria, the capital, destroyed and leveled. What's the lion then? Terry? Well, it's... Um... Remember the picture I showed you of the king and his chariot? Asher Banabal? Oh, right. What was he doing? Well, that his symbol was the lion. Uh, what was that king in the chariot doing in that picture that I, I passed out? You remember, Loretta? I do not. I'd have to look. <laughs> well, I don't need to. I just wonder if it's stuck in your mind. He was hunting lions in the back of his chariot. And what kind of a king was he? What nation? Was he Babylonian or was he? He's Assyrian. The Assyrians, yes, had lots of pictures on their palace walls about hunting lions from their chariots or even standing out in open field and shooting arrows into chariots. And then the lion was a great symbol. It was a great icon of the Assyrian Empire. It will also be an icon of the Babylonian Empire, but here, particularly poignant. And in fact, the archaeologists have dug up extensive uh, 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 palace 
models and carvings of lions uh, in the Assyrian artwork. You know, you can even see the sinews in the lion. It's so well distinguished in the uh, in the iconography. All right, so the lion here is a, Syri- a symbol of the Assyrian Empire. We've already identified it as the nation that destroys or lays to waste the northern kingdom of Israel and Samaria. Now, in verse 16, we're introduced to two cities, Memphis and Tapanes. It's pronounced Tapanes. Okay, where are these cities? They are in Egypt. Very good, Cheryl. All right, now, this is a map of the ancient Near East and Palestine here, Sinai Peninsula here. This is the Gulf of Suez, the Gulf of Aqaba. And here is Egypt, Mediterranean Sea. And here is the Nile Delta. And at the bottom of the Nile Delta is the city of Memphis, which at this time in Jeremiah's day was the capital of the, of the Egyptian nation. Now, Tapanis is a frontier garrison town. It's on the frontier just before you go into the Sinai Desert, and it is here. So these are the two, uh, this is the location of these two cities. They are in Egypt. So we ask, what is the significance of both of these cities? And we want to turn over to chapter 43 in particular and look Briefly at the first nine verses, particularly verses six and seven of this chapter. Chapter 43, verses one to nine, but particularly verses six and seven. Right now, first of all, this is after, notice verse 3, this is after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And what is going on here? Are these folks going off to Babylon? Verse 7 They're going down into Egypt, okay? So there's a group of survivors of the Babylonian destruction who are being, who are take, who are going down into Egypt. And who are they taking with them? The people of Judah. They're taking the people of Judah. And who else? Verse 6. They're taking Jeremiah. In fact, they're taking Jeremiah by force. Jeremiah was forced to go down with this group into Egypt. And where do they stop? They stop in verse 7 and 8 in Tapanis. So the projection of chapter 2, namely what are Memphis and uh, Tapanis, is going to replay itself in Jeremiah's own career. He's actually going to be taken down to Tapanese, and they're also going to uh, filter on down to Memphis, which you will uh, notice is mentioned in chapter 44, verse 1. All right, so at the end of the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of Judah, 
Some survivors, which include Jeremiah, he was spared by Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to be taken down by force by a group of renegade Jews and be taken down into Egypt. And they're going to settle in Memphis and Papanese and some of the other cities of Egypt. So this projection here in chapter 2 is actually a foreshadowing of what we're going to find in the narrative biography of uh, Jeremiah and some of the Jews at the end of the book. Now, skipping to verse 18, we notice the road to Egypt and the road to Assyria. Now, if you'll notice verse 36, you'll see those two nations listed again in sequence. The shame of Egypt and the shame of Assyria. The mention of Assyria here in chapter 2 is a clue to dating this chapter. In other words, this chapter must have been given by revelation, given by God, before a particular year. Before the year when Assyria disappeared from history. In other words, if God is talking about the road to Assyria, then Assyria is still prospectively there on the horizon. If he's talking about the shame of Assyria, he's once again referring to the fact that it is prospectively still on the horizon. That allows us then to give a date for this chapter In other words, a date beyond which it cannot have gone. And what date would that be? When did Assyria disappear? What's the theme of the book of Nahum? Nahum is the NNN book. Nahum and Nineveh. And what is Nahum saying about Nineveh in his NNN book? That Nineveh is going to be destroyed by the Lord. It's going to be leveled as Nineveh had dealt out to others, so God was going to deal to Nineveh in return. What Nineveh sowed, Nineveh was going to reap. And so the question, of course, is, When does Nahum prophesy this and when did it happen? Well, he prophesied it before this very same year that we're looking for here in Jeremiah chapter 2. He prophesied that Assyria would be destroyed, Nineveh would be destroyed. And who who destroyed Nineveh, incidentally? Robert, who destroyed Nineveh? Who destroyed the Assyrian Empire? Terry? Babylonians, correct. Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar. All right, so when did that happen? When did the mighty city of Assyria, when did Assyria collapse? In 612 B.C. And you remember that a little remnant of it ran to the west to Haran, 
and it was decimated or destroyed finally in 609. So we can date this prophecy in Jeremiah 2 to some time before 612 B.C., which places it in the days of who? What king of Judah? Jehoiachary. Josiah. And if you turn over to chapter 3, verse 6, as we pointed out the last time, you will notice the days of Josiah the king. All right now, the dating of this material in chapter 2, as we indicated by the occurrence of that phrase, the days of King Josiah, is important in terms of the sequence of the prophet's life. We have pointed out that we have a biographical narrative through the 50-plus chapters of this book. We have a story of Jeremiah as well as the words of Jeremiah. And so we can position these words in chapter 2 as sometime before Josiah's death in 609, sometime before the destruction of Assyria as a nation in 612, sometime in the days of Josiah, before between 640 and 609. Actually, after 626, because we learn from the first chapter that the permission of the Lord comes to Jeremiah in the 13th year of Josiah, which is the year 626 B.C. Now, all of this is to note that we must come to grips with the historical background of these statements, the road to Egypt in verse 18 and the shame of this road to Egypt and Assyria in 18 and the shame of Egypt and Assyria in verse 36. Now I'm going to make a suggestion here because there is no consensus on the uh, historical uh, importance or historical reflection of these uh, two verses. And one of the reasons for that is that most of the liberal critics do not believe that these words in chapter 2 were spoken in the days of Josiah. Nonetheless, if we take the text of the scriptures as reliable, uh, we look at that language there. It must come before Assyria's destruction, and so it must be in the days of Josiah. And I'm going to proceed on that basis. So let's take a look at the, uh, the name of the nation as it occurs in verses 3 and 4. Okay, what do you see there? What name of the nation is is given in verses 3 and 4? What chapter? Chapter 2. House of Jacob? No, that's not what you mean. Notice the word that's in 3, the, the name of a nation in 3 that's the same as the name of the nation in 4. See it? Oh, it says Israel. Israel. All right, so 3 and 4, we have Israel. Now let's glance down to verse 26. Go ahead, Kay. Take a look down to verse 36, and what name do you see for the nation there? Verse what? Verse 26. 26. The house of Israel. Israel again. All right, so notice that as verse 18 talks about the road to Egypt and Assyria, We have a little frame of the nation of Israel, verses 3 and 4 to verse 26. 
So you can fill out your outline on verse 18, road to Egypt, parallel road to Assyria. And then verses 3 and 4, Israel, and verse 26, Israel. Now, let's now look at verse 28. Loretta, what nation do we find in verse 28? Judah. And if you turn now to verse 7 of chapter 3, what nation do you find in that verse? Judah again. again. All right, so now we have another little bracket of the nation of Judah between verse 28 and 3-7, which sandwiches the shame of Egypt in verse 36 and the shame of Assyria in verse 36. All right, my point here is that... The Lord is designating something about Egypt and Assyria, which has to do with Israel in verse 18. And he's dealing with, he's detailing something that has to do with Egypt and Assyria, which has to do with uh, Judah in verse 36. And the clue to that is the fact that he frames or sandwiches those parallel Egypt-Assyria lines between Israel, Israel, and Judah, Judah. All right, that's, I mean, that, that's my case for making these distinctions. Well, then what events? If we're saying that verse 18 is referring to events in the history of Israel, what possible events could the Lord be describing? Well, obviously, these are events before the destruction of the northern kingdom, before the destruction of, of Samaria by the Assyrians in 722. So, as you'll notice, King Hoshea, who was the last of the kings of the northern kingdom, the last king in Samaria, he reigned until 722 when the city and the nation was destroyed. He entered into a, a treaty arrangement with So, King So of Egypt, or Osirkon IV, as he's known from Egyptian history, and that event is recorded in 2 Kings 17.4. Do not go down to the road to Egypt as Israel did. And Israel, when it went down on that road to Egypt, was disappointed with the alliance that it tried to arrange with the Egyptians because it did not keep the Assyrians from destroying the northern kingdom. All right, that would then explain the historical reference then to the road to Egypt in verse 18. Namely, Israel's intrigue with Egypt while Assyria was already overlord of the northern kingdom because of Tiglath-Pileser III and because they were playing footsie in terms of thinking they could throw off the Assyrian yoke by bringing up the Egyptian army. It failed. Well, what about Assyria itself? In other words, what about the road to Assyria? We, we got a suggestion for the road to Egypt. What about the road to Assyria? Well, Menachem, who was king of Israel uh, before Hoshea, uh, one of the last of the uh, f- uh, four final kings of the northern kingdom, he submitted to Tiglath-Pileser as a vassal tributary. And so he had to give tribute. He had to pay an annual tax to Tiglath-Pileser in the Assyrian Empire. And that event is recorded in 2 Kings 15. Therefore, the road to Assyria is a reference to the northern kingdom paying an annual tributary tax 
as a vassal nation to the Assyrian Empire, King Tiglath-Pileser III. So verse 18 is God designating this road that Israel took both to Egypt, which failed, and to Assyria, which failed because the northern kingdom's sinful disobedience caused the wrath of the Assyrians to be poured out upon them, and the Egyptians did not come to their aid as Hosea 7.11 specifies. You can look that up at your leisure. You'll notice the prophet Hosea is prophesying in that last era of the northern kingdom's history uh, between 750 and 722 B.C., and he alludes to this uh, uh, treachery on the part of uh, the kings of Israel with respect to Egypt and Assyria. All right, so we have a possible suggestion for uh, the uh, road to Egypt and Assyria in verse 18. What about the shame of Egypt and Assyria in verse 36? Right now we're looking at the southern kingdom. We're looking at Judah, the kingdom that survives the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722. So what could be this future or shall be the shame of Egypt referenced in verse 36. It could possibly refer to Pharaoh Necho. Now, Pharaoh Necho in 609 changed the history of the southern kingdom. He was on his way up to Haran, to Haran rather, where that remnant of the Assyrian Empire had retreated after Nineveh had been destroyed, Assyria had been destroyed in 612. And on his way north to meet the remnant of the Assyrians, he did something that changed the history of Judah. What did he do? Harry? He killed Josiah. He killed Josiah, correct. And when he killed Josiah in 609, it changed the history of Judah because Judah became subject to Assyria for four more years. In other words, Necho, on his way back, <coughs> took Je- Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, off the throne and placed Jehoiakim on the throne in place of him, and he was a puppet of Egypt for at least four years. All right, so it's possible reference to the shame that will come, the the shame that shall be from Egypt could be a reference to the fact that Judah would be shamed into being a vassal kingdom of Egypt after Necho killed Josiah at the pass of Mogiddo in 609. It could also be a reference to the treachery of the last king of the southern kingdom, King Zedekiah. Now, the treachery of Zedekiah is very much like the treachery of Hoshea, the last king of the northern kingdom. Interesting that both of the last kings of the, of the nation of Israel and Judah, both final monarch, have a treacherous intrigue with Egypt. We mentioned that earlier when we talked about Hoshea and his attempted alliance with So or Osirkon IV. Zedekiah attempts to arrange a, a arrangement uh, with uh, Pharaoh Hophra, or Aprius, and Hophra is mentioned in Jeremiah 44, verse 30. But this intrigue, this alliance, an attempt to bring the Egyptian army to relieve the siege of Jerusalem, 
This intrigue is mentioned in Second Chronicles 36, Ezekiel 17, Jeremiah 37. It's mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament as a, uh, a failure, a shameful thing. Because, of course, Zedekiah was a bound vassal to Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. So he was betraying his oath to his sovereign overlord, namely the king of Babylon. All right, now that would explain the shame of Egypt, potentially either the Pharaoh Necho incident or the treachery of Zedekiah with Pharaoh Hophra. Well, what about Assyria? Well, notice the tense of the verb there in verse 36. You shall be put to shame by Egypt. In other words, something which is in front of you at the end of the days of Josiah or beyond the days of Josiah. As you were, past tense, put to shame by Assyria. Were. When was Judah put to shame by Assyria? Well, when Manasseh, and notice Manasseh's reign. Manasseh reigns 55 years, the longest reign of any king in Israel or Judah. Manasseh reigns 55 years, and most of that reign was abominable wretchedness, one of the most wicked kings in the history of either Israel and Judah. And so he was captured by the Assyrians and taken off to Assyria and imprisoned. And while he was in prison, what happened to him? Pete? Don't remember. Okay. He cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard his cry, and he lifted him up out of prison and restored him to his kingdom. And he began to undo all that he had done. He began to reform the idolatry and the perversion that he had introduced into the nation of Judah until from the time of his release from that, from that Assyrian prison until his death. Now, it's the book of Chronicles that tells that story. Second Kings does not tell it. Though the repentance of Manasseh is a marvelous instant of a, an about face. And so it is possible that this reference to the shame that had occurred in Judah because of Assyria refers to the fact that Assyria had taken their king, Manasseh, and had taken him off to Nineveh and had imprisoned him and kept him a captive for a number of years until he repented and the Lord heard his cry and he was restored to his throne and also uh, restored to a uh, honorable and godly worship of the Lord. All right, now these are suggestions about the historic content of those allusions here uh, based upon the framing of Israel in verses 3 and 4 and 26 and the framing of Judah in 28 through chapter 3, verse 7. All right, now coming back to verse 20. Long ago, I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds. Cheryl, what do you think that that's referring to? Um, when the Lord tore off the yoke. 
They're getting going to freedom, freedom from ins- Egypt. Egypt. Yes, this is a reference to the Exodus from Egypt when he set them free from their bondage. But what have they done? They have gone up under every high hill and have lain down under every green tree as a harlot. They have prostituted themselves. They have played the whore. They have prostituted themselves before the idols of the gods of the nations. And so here we have a direct reference to the fact that the idolatry of Jeremiah's day was a form of prostitution, a form of sacred prostitution. I planted, verse 21, I planted a choice vine, but what has become of this choice vine? When did he plant that choice vine? Terry? Uh, when they entered the, the land. Very good. When they came into the promised land. But what has happened to this choice vine which he planted? Go ahead, Terry. You still have the floor. Uh, well, it, it became a, a weed. <laughs> it's one of your weeds, Loretta. <laughs> All right, notice the word in the New American Standard. Notice the word degenerate shoot. In other words, this choice vine has become a degenerate or renegade shoot or vine. Now, in the verse 22, he uses the imagery of soap and lie to cleanse the stain of their iniquity. And it's interesting that the Hebrew word for lie in this verse is neter, which is very close to niter. And for those of you from the old washerwomen days, uh, what was niter? Well, what was it? Do you remember your mother's or grandmother's? Soda ash. Soda ash. And where did they put it? And they put it in lava soap. Well, actually, lava was actually uh, uh, pumice. It was, uh, it was volcanic ash. But this soda ash uh, is another kind of, uh, of lye which would put some rough uh, uh, particles into the soap so that it would scrub out the dirt. If any of you have ever used lava soap, uh, you know that you, you use it when you've got your hands all greasy and you're changing your oil or you're doing your grease job on your uh, ball bearings or whatever and you get all that grease down into your pores of your skin or down into your fingernails. The only one way to get it out is scrub it out with lava soap. I remember when I was a grease monkey, that, that, that's, what, that's the only soap they had in the restroom. <laughs> you use that to clean off your hands. Okay. All right. So this... Uh, Association between neter and niter in English is uh, uh, is very significant in terms of the imagery here. All right now, this soap is going to uh, remove the stain of the iniquity that has risen up before the Lord, or is it? Or is it? Is there any soap that can remove this stain? This putrid stain that has corrupted the nation. No, the Lord is asking a rhetorical question. He 
cannot, they cannot wash themselves to cleanse that stain. No soap, no lye can remove it. No cosmetic can cover it. No perfume can mask it. No makeup can hide it. Nothing can uh, uh, cover the blemish of this stain, which is irremovable. Why? Verse 22, because their nature is unchangeable. Verse 25, notice what this nation says. I have loved strangers, and after them I will walk. I have loved these idols. I have loved these strange gods. I will not. I will not walk after you. I will walk after these lovers whom I have given myself to. The nature then of the nation is being described in terms of this unchangeable or unremedial, irremedial disposition. And notice that it is anchored, this disposition is anchored in the desire of the will. I will walk after them. It is a willing act. Right, now, let's put this together with the scene of the idolatry here. Remember, this idolatry is described in terms of whorish prostitution, sacred prostitution, worshiping idols through sexual acts. Notice what God is saying. You are willingly participating in these acts. These whorish acts show a whorish will. These whorish acts show a whorish desire. These whorish acts show a whorish delight. They delight in this worship, which includes sexual prostitution. They delight in this sexual abandonment, which is against the law of God. It is a willing choice in which they delight. Because the nature of the person who performs the act delights in the act itself. Now, we don't like to think about this simply because it's outside our frame of reference for the most part, but nonetheless, we must realize that women who are prostitutes prostitute themselves for the sake of delighting in what they are doing, not only because it makes money for them, but also because there is an exhilaration that goes along with it. It may be hard for us to imagine that, but nonetheless, sex sells. It sells because those that purchase it have a nature that delights in it. They enjoy it. They enjoy the illicit character of it. All you have to do is turn on your desperate housewife TV show or Sex in the City. This is an embellishment. This is a a glamorizing of that very illicit delight. Let us not fool ourselves about the temptation or about the enjoyment of illicit sexuality. These people of Judah weren't being forced 
to go to the idols that they were worshiping sexually. They weren't being forced to do that. They went there because they loved it. I love those strangers. I will walk after them. These are willful choices of a nature which is determined and disposed towards that behavior. Which once again reminds us that when we're looking at actions, we're also looking at choices of the will. We're also looking at that which that person wanted to do, delighted to do, loved to do, in the sense that it was the thing that they wanted most at that particular moment. There is not a disconnection between the action out here and the will or the heart or the state of desire in here. The two are connected. The one leads to the other. Jesus taught us this. If we forget it, it's because we have been so narcotized by our media and by our culture to disconnect the action from the intent of the will, from the delight of the will, from the desire of the will, from the desire of the heart. But Jesus told us, out of the heart come forth adultery, fornication, theft, lying, etc., It comes because it is the delight and desire of the nature that produces that act. Which is the reason that repentance is absolutely essential for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Repentance and rebirth, a change of nature, a change of desire, a change of delight. That you do not delight any longer after the things of the flesh, but you now delight in the things of Christ, the Lord God, the Holy Spirit, the holiness of heaven. We're talking about a change in nature, change in will, a change in desire, a change in delight, a change in action. By their fruits you shall know them. That's what God is saying to Judah. I know you by your fruits. You delight in this whorish behavior because you have a whorish heart. I invite you to turn from it. All right, take your break and we'll come back to continue to the end to verse 5 of chapter 3. Where the nation is saying, I am not defiled, I have not gone after the Baals. Is that true? How do you know? Very good. In verse 20, when they had lain down under every green tree as a harlot, part of that is the worship of Baal. That part, worship of Baal involves sacred prostitution. If we go back to verse 8, Chapter 2, we look up that the prophets are prophesying by Baal in the nation. So obviously this uh, uh, claim on the part of the people that they're not defiled, they've not gone after the Baals, 
is a lie. But he adds, look at your way in the valley. What valley is he talking about? Terry. In the valley of Hinnom. Where is Hinnom, Terry? Located in what city? I'm not sure. I thought it was near Megiddo, but near Megiddo? No. Where is Hinnom? Okay. What verse are you on? Verse 23. He doesn't say Valley of Hinnom, but Terry's right. It is the Valley of Hinnom, and we'll we'll explain why because of its association here. Where is it, Kay? I don't know. Cheryl? Loretta? Nope. Scott? Uh, Hinnom? I can't remember. Pete? I think it's the valley that's uh, the garbage dump for Jerusalem. It is in Jerusalem, correct. All right. Now, in this time, Jerusalem is not a great big, great big metropolis. It's uh, fairly well-sized, but it's fairly narrow, okay, and... The temple is up in this corner of Jerusalem. <clears throat> On the east side is another valley. What's that valley called? If I go east, up the Mount of Olives, but first of all I go across the valley of what? There's a little stream. That Kidron. Kidron. That's the Kidron Valley. Very good. David goes that way when Absalom chases him out of Jerusalem. <clears throat> okay. Valley of Hinnom is on this side, on the southwest side of Jerusalem. Now, what occurred in the Valley of Hinnom? That's the reason we know that his reference here to Valley is the Valley of Hinnom. Terry, you're nodding your head. Good. What occurred there? They burned their children. They burned their children in the Valley of Hinnom, which is part of the association of the worship of Baal. In other words, they offered their infants to the hot arms of a god and incinerated the child uh, while the drums of the priests were beating out in, in uh, so-called Tophet, uh, the main Tophet perhaps referring to the fact of the, uh, no, the drums beating to drown out the noise. All right, so uh, Hinnom uh, became a garbage dump because it was always smoldering. That's where they also uh, threw out uh, their, their refuse. And uh, as occurs in the old uh, landfills, uh, where they didn't uh, plow them under as they do today, they would catch fire and smolder perpetually. I remember as a child uh, going to a landfill with my father to dump out some things, and the thing was always smoking and stinking. So we're, we're, we're happy for, for, for uh, some eco-freaks, right? Some. All right. Now, the next image here in verse 24 the donkey that sniffs the wind, and up in verse 23, the swift young camel camel entangling her ways. Now, this donkey sniffs the wind in her passion, in her time of heat. The reference here is to the female donkey in heat, sniffing the air for the scent of the male, and she will chase and run after the male until they mate. This image, of course, is parallel to the sexual imagery of this chapter about the sexual idolatry of the nation of Israel and Judah. 
Now, the fact that the camel is mentioned in the uh, phrase above, camel entangling her ways, uh, <clears throat> some have suggested that this is simply a gangly, uh, you know, female camel that's tripping all over her long legs as she's trying to uh, get up or uh, run about. Uh, I think it's stronger than that. I think it's a reference to the very same pattern of a female camel in heap, so frantic that she's tangled up in her gangway legs as she's uh, frantically looking for the male uh, for mating purposes. So the imagery here is appropriate to the pattern of the idolatry of uh, these uh, uh, sexually uh, exploitative gods and idols. So verse 25, we've already noted this in measure before. The actions reflect the desire. The behavior indicates what pleases most. They pursue the whoredom because they love the whoredom. They have made themselves bond slaves of lust, religious prostitution, sexual degradation, and sexual liberation. They have set themselves free. They're free of any restraints. They're free of any inhibitions. They're free to uh, give themselves sexually at will to whatever they wish. They have defined this type of behavior as good, It is liberty. It is freedom. We are free from all inhibitions and restraints. So this evil, which God defines as perversions of fornication and adultery, they have defined as good. Evil has become good. But God calls this liberty bondage. He calls their good evil. We pointed this out the last time. One of the things that idolatry does is it turns the world upside down. It makes evil good and good evil. And eventually, if that evil is not stemmed or if it's not destroyed, it will destroy the society that promotes it. That's exactly what's going to happen to Judah. It's exactly what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. It's quite interesting that God's charge against both of these nations, for the most part, was a charge of sexual infidelity. Sexual infidelity as a nation, sexual infidelity spiritually, but sexual infidelity personally and actually, in terms of behavior, in terms of what they did with their bodies. And he brought down those two nations on the basis primarily for that sexual infidelity and license. Why? Because, you see, it destroys the fabric of a nation. It destroys the fabric of the human family. It destroys the fabric of a society. If you have runagate, runaway sexual license, you have no security. You just ask the children of single parent families. You ask them. There is no security. There is no certainty. And that will perpetuate itself in the next generation so that those children of those relationships will then look for security 
in the same thing that their single parent looked for it. And they won't find it there any more than their single parent did. And then they'll look for it in the state. They'll look for the state to provide the security for them. And then when the state can't perform it or provide it, the society will collapse. Because you see, you can only pay for that burden so long. You don't have enough money to pay for it forever. When you create a society in which no longer is fidelity to one man and one woman, the bond, and the children which are precious out of that relationship, they are preserved in a secure mother-father relationship. When you have a nation that no longer holds that value high, then you are on your way to destroying your society because you can't pay. You can't pay for the consequences of it. Broken marriages, broken families, crime, sexual license, no longer anybody having children. You realize the birth rate in Europe is not high enough to sustain the debt that Greece, Italy, Spain, and all of the rest of them are mounting up. They haven't got enough kids coming along to pay for it. That is exactly what this country is facing. We are facing a generation 40 to 80 years from now that will not be able to support the old people that will be living off of it. Why? Because even our birth rate is declining. You understand, you see, what the consequences of this action are. They are not just immediate. They are with STDs and everything else, but they are remote. Down the road, the the tab will come. The piper will have to be paid. Sooner or later, the bill will come due. You can say it won't come due in my generation. You know, my pension's guaranteed. By whom? By whom? By the federal government? Federal government doesn't produce anything. All it does is make money. But that doesn't produce any any uh, a fabric, any manufactured good, any creativity. All it does is pass the money from somebody that's got it to somebody that wants it. You create a society like that, you're on the brink of eventual destruction. Well, Judah was, Israel was, and they were both destroyed, partly because of this rampant sexual idolatry. Now, verse 26, that shame pervades all levels of society. Notice, they, the citizens of the land, they are shamed. The kings, the leaders, the rulers of the land, they are shamed. Their princes, that is the next generation of rulers and leaders and governors. The priests, the theologians, the leaders of the religious community, they are ashamed. And the prophets, the spokesmen, the press secretaries, the media moguls, 
those that stand up to give authoritative commentary, they are ashamed. Shame pervades every level of the society, every aspect of the culture. Everyone is involved in this prostitution. Everyone. And in verse 27, they say to the tree, you are my father. And to the stone, you are my mother. Who is this tree? Who is this stone? Does it refer to the idols? Yes. Who's the tree? Asherah. The Asherah. <coughs> What's the sex of the Asherah? Female. That's the female. You are my father? Well, I don't think so. Exactly. So what's God doing? Showing what they're doing wrong. He's being sarcastic, isn't he? He's ridiculing them. The Asherah, your father? Fat chance. Well, they hadn't heard about transgender operations, had they? Okay. All right. Now, the stone. What's the stone? This is the female figure, so what's the stone? That's the male figure. Okay, this is the Asherah, the, the, the tree or the pole. What's the stone? Baal. Baal, that's Baal, exactly. Right. You are my mother. Right, now the perversion here, you see, I notice once again, idolatry turns the world upside down. Everything gets flip-flopped. The female becomes the male. The male becomes the female. The imagery is completely reversed. That's how perverted this is. And God is ridiculing them for it. It's sarcasm here. Verses 27 and 28 together are describing the impotence of the idols. It's not only sexual impotence. It's also moral and spiritual impotence. It's the powerlessness of this society. It was a society that could no longer defend itself. It was a society that could no longer pay for itself. It was a society that ran itself into the ground. It ran itself into death. Because of its dissolute and pervert behavior. God said, you give yourself up to this spiritual adultery and this physical fornication and adultery and you will be given up. You will not be able to save yourself when someone more powerful than you decides to take you over. And that's exactly what Assyria did in 722. And Babylon did in 586. Verse 29. What does that verse sound like? What echo from the New Testament do you see in that verse? Romans 9. Romans 9. What are you thinking of? I'm thinking of... Uh, it's not Romans 9. Romans 3.23. Which is? All the sin. All the sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's Jeremiah talking about what the Apostle Paul talks about. All have transgressed against me, declares the Lord. I was thinking of, who are you, O man, 
Uh, yeah, I want I want something more explicit, you know, where the transgression of the word sin occurs in the verse, which I think is echoed in the Apostle Paul. Though Paul is not quoting this passage, nonetheless, Paul and Jeremiah are saying the same thing about human nature. All have transgressed. We we admit that about ourselves. It is also true here of Israel and Judah. Verse 30. You have devoured your prophets with the sword. What could he be thinking about? You've killed the prophets with the sword. Okay, what could, he, what, what could the Lord be referring to here? You've killed the prophets with the sword. Loretta? Well, I can think of some prophets being killed in the days of Elijah. Very good. Back to Elijah. Who killed him? Well, Jezebel. Jezebel. And who was her husband? Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 17 and 18. Yes, they killed the Lord's prophets. They killed so many of them that Elijah was the only one left, right? And in the pity party, he ran for his life because he was scared. All right. God didn't let him get away with that. But at any rate, that would be one uh, past incident in which Israel had killed the prophets. Nehemiah 9.26 talks about it as something that had happened frequently throughout their history, even in Jeremiah's time. Let's turn over to chapter 26 for a moment. And let's keep our finger in chapter 2 and turn to chapter 26. Let's look at this story. Jeremiah 26. Beginning at verse 20, there was a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah. Here's another Uriah. You remember Uriah in the days of David, Uriah the Hittite, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath Yarim. And he prophesied against this city, namely the city of Jerusalem and against this land, the land of Judah, words similar to all those of Jeremiah. In other words, he was a contemporary of Jeremiah. He was saying the same thing Jeremiah was saying. In other words, he's kind of like a mirror image of Jeremiah. King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard his words. They heard what Uriah was saying, and the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard it. He was afraid, and he fled. And where did he go? He went down to Egypt. Went down to Egypt. Very interesting. Then King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt. Alnathan, the son of Akbor, and certain men with him went into Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt and led him to the king Jehoiakim, who slew him with the sword. And cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. So here is a contemporary prophet who is slain, namely Uriah, the friend and and uh, colleague of Jeremiah, at least colleague in the sense of proclaiming the same message. But we're not done with this story, are we? Verse 24 of chapter 23. And the hand of Hikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given into the hands of the people to put him to death. Jehoiakim wanted to kill Jeremiah. If he'd gotten his hands on him, he would have killed him. But they hit him. This is not the first time that they tried to kill Jeremiah, is it? The king tries to kill him here. But in chapter 11, turn to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 21. Jeremiah eleven twenty one. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, 
who seek your life, the men of Anathoth. Where's Anathoth? What do we know about Anathoth? Terry? That's where he was from. That's where Jeremiah was born. It's his hometown. Here are men. Here are his own homeborn fellow townspeople trying to kill him. So Jeremiah is living through the very intense reality of this statement in chapter 2, verse 30, that the sword has devoured the prophets. Sword has devoured like a destroying lion. Why does he do that? Why does he talk about the sword as a devouring lion? Because... The heft or the hilt of a sword in the ancient world was often shaped like the head of a lion. And the blade was the tongue of the lion. Because the blade came out of the mouth of the lion's head on the handle of the sword. The sword devours like the lion because many of the swords of battle were shaped like a lion's head. And the devouring part of that instrument of death was the blade which came out of the lion's mouth. They've in fact discovered, archaeologically, they discovered swords like this. All right, verse 31 mentions the wilderness. We've had this before in this chapter. In verse 2, we had the wilderness as the place of the honeymoon betrothal. In chapter, in verse 6, rather, we've had also the place where God led his people through the wilderness after he brought them out of Egypt. So here, the wilderness is a reflection back upon the condition of Israel. But this generation, this generation says something else about the wilderness. It's not the place of the honeymoon. It's not the place of the betrothal. It's not the place of the pilgrimage sojourn. What? Who is the wilderness? The Lord himself is the desert. This generation looks at God as the wilderness. You won't let us have any freedom. You won't have us let us have any liberty. You won't let us do what we want to do. You're the desert. You're the wilderness. We're going into the promised land of license and, you know, abandon and perversion. That's what we want. We want real liberty, genuine freedom. So God himself is regarded as the very opposite of the land of milk and honey. He's the land of death and desolation. So the freedom here, the freedom that they have gained is freedom to roam loose from God and from God's character and from God's will. The defiance here, we will no more come to thee. We defy you. We regard you as the enemy. We'll strip all your crosses from our mountains. 
We have nothing to do with you. Because we are, we will not come to you. These are willing choices again. Notice, we will come no more. We will not come to you. What does Jesus say? I would that you would come to me, but you would not. You would not. You were not willing. Verse 32 has that bridal imagery again. Can the bride forget her ornaments or can she forget her wedding attire? Would any bride forget her wedding gown on her wedding day? Of course she wouldn't. But Israel has forgotten the Lord. We had that bridal imagery in verse 2 of this chapter, and we have it in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. In verse 33, they seek love. Okay, Love here as prostitution, as the whoredom of bowing before the idols in sexual acts. And taught your ways there in verse 33. Is it a suggestion that this is just learning wickedness in general? Or is it a suggestion that this prostitution at the idol centers and the shrines of the pagan gods is a thing that you learn? It's a thing that you instructed. In other words, you're instructed in the tricks of the trade. And I use the pun intentionally. Is that what's being suggested here? I leave it open. Can go either way. Verse 34. Your skirts, in your skirts is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. You did not find them breaking in, but in spite of all these things, you said, I am innocent. You did not find them breaking in. All right, keep your finger there and go back to Exodus 22. Perhaps in your marginal Bible, you've got a note there. Exodus 22, verse 2. The thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies. There will be no blood guiltiness on his account. The so-called castle defense. Your home is your castle. They have the right to defend it. You remember the story of the recently widowed woman in Oklahoma on New Year's Eve. Her husband had died of lung cancer on Christmas Day, less than a week before. She's in her trailer, 25 miles from any major city. She has her baby in her arms. Two guys try to break into her trailer. She puts the couch in front of the door in order to slow them down. She gets 911 on the line. She asks, is there a dispatcher who can come to my aid? No, there's nobody for 12,000 square miles. There are only three people to cover all that territory. Nobody can get there in time. She says, I've got two guns in my hand. Am I allowed to protect myself? The dispatcher says, we cannot tell you to shoot them, but we can tell you to protect the life of your baby. She puts a bottle in her baby's mouth to keep it from crying. She takes her guns, and when they break through the door, knocking over the couch, she shoots the first man through the door who came to attack her, he and his buddy, because they were high on on painkillers, and they thought because her husband had died of lung cancer, she had painkillers in her house, and they would get the free booty. She killed that 24-year-old man, 
And she did it on the basis of self-defense. And she did it on the basis of Exodus 22, verse 2. The principle of that passage is still legitimate. That's what God is referring to. You did not find them breaking in. If you had found them breaking in, particularly at night, when you can't tell whether they're armed or not, you have the right to defend yourself, even to the point of killing that other person in self-defense. Verse 35. What do they deny? They deny their sin. They say, I am innocent. First John 1 9. Whoever says he has no sin, the same is a liar. God will judge their sin as he will judge their denial of their sin. And they will go, verse 37, they will go in shame with their hands upon their head. We actually have archaeological uh, tablets or images which see these captives from uh, ancient cities uh, leaving with their hands upon their head. It's a sign of shame and humiliation. In whom do they trust? In whom do these, do, do the nations of Israel and Judah trust? They trusted in Egypt. They trusted in Assyria. Notice, once again, the reference in verses 18 and 36. And they trusted in their idol gods. Now, chapter 3, verses 1 and 5. There is a little structure in this unit. You can't see it in many of your English versions because in verse 1, the word behold or look is in the Hebrew text, though it's not translated in your English version. But in verse 5, or I should say in many of your English versions, in verse 5, you do see the word behold. It does appear there. So there's a little bracket around this section of this unit. Idolatry is adultery. So we come back to that marital image, which we began with in chapter 2, verse 2, so that binds this section as a unit. If a husband's wife belongs to another man, that is the sin of adultery. If the husband would return to her, that would be a worse sin. We would now have multiple adulteries. The wife here is Judah. The husband is God. The wife's many lovers are her idols. Turning to the Lord will <clears throat> turns to the Lord while continuing. That is, she does not turn to the Lord. Really, in truth, she continues to prostitute herself before her idols. Multiple idolatry. Multiple adultery. Now, verse 2, the bare heights. Why are the heights bare? Notice verse 3. There is no rain. What is the irony here? Baal? Baal is the god of... Fertility. Fertility. That's right, the weather. He is pictured in iconography. There are actually statues of Baal holding a lightning bolt. But he's the weather god, the storm god. And with the weather, with the rain, comes the fertility of the ground. So the irony here is that they're going to the bare heights, which have been stripped of all vegetation because there is no rain. Uh, verse 2. By the roads you have sat for them. Is this a reference to the sexual traffic, to the uh, <clears throat> prostitutes propositioning, the worshippers? On the roadside. What about the phrase Arab in the desert? 
Is this a reference to a roadside merchant selling his wares to travelers who are on the way to the shrines of the idols? Or is it a reference to a desert brigand, somebody who's laying in ambush? There's a strong negative here, all right? So the issue is uh, if those who are sitting by the roadside are involved in, uh, in no good, that is, they are actually being temptresses, then perhaps this Arab in the desert is also a criminal figure or a person who is practicing some type of illicit behavior. <clears throat> Uh, namely, he's trying to steal or rob the travelers on the road. Verse 3, <clears throat> you have a harlot's forehead. You have a harlot's forehead. What does this mean? This is a mystery in some ways. There are two suggestions. The harlot's forehead is just simply a way of describing the stubbornness or the bullheadedness of this nation. Or is it a reference to some distinctive type of jewelry or ornamental jewelry which is worn on the brow of the forehead by a person designating herself as a prostitute or a harlot? Is that what the suggestion is? It could go either way. Verse 4. Have you not just now called me my father? Is God their father? No, he's not. This is hypocritical. They're saying you are my father. In other words, that's another way of saying you are my Baal. Because husband is another word for Baal, which would refer to this husband imagery in the worship of the idols. Consequently, this is a hypocritical reflection or affirmation of God. And so, will he be angry forever? Yes and no. Yes, he will be angry to the point of the destruction of the nation. Will he be angry forever? No, there will be a remnant that will be saved. He will forgive those who come to him in genuine repentance and confession. But what is happening in Judah? You have done evil things and you have had your way. The evil deeds belie the confession, my father, in verse 4. You cannot say that God is your father and do evil deeds. The two do not compute. They do not go together. Any questions about uh, any of the imagery or any of the reflections there? God. This language of God being a wilderness in verse 31 of chapter 2, uh, is he doing something where he's reversing the imagery or something of chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where he brought them out of the land of Egypt? Yes. He led them through the wilderness? Yes. He, this, this is what they regard him as. Okay? So it's the flip side of him making the wilderness a place where he sustains them. Now they're looking at him as a place. Now they're looking at God as someone who's penalizing them with the restrictions of his law and will. This is not a happy picture of the nation of Judah as she is on the brink of her very own destruction. But it is the picture of the reality of the nation that was given to Jeremiah. It's the proclamation 
that he proclaims himself as he will carry on with this very same judgment against the nation for its idolatry and other things which God has laid down here. It's the reason the second chapter is formative for the book as a whole. Now, as I said, there is no eschatology in this chapter. There doesn't look to be there any hope in this chapter. Come back in two weeks. You'll find it in chapter 3. And that's where we'll see the first definitive outline of the eschatology of Jeremiah. A promise of hope for the future and the assurance of the, ex- of the expectant or coming grace of God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do hold on to your grace because but for your grace, we would be as Judah and Israel of old. We know. We know that we have sinned. We have all transgressed. There is in our heart the very inclination to some of these abominations that we have described. We're ashamed of those. We're ashamed and we repent of them. We repent before your face in true and genuine contrition and sorrow. And we flee. We flee idolatry, Lord. We flee it because you, you are our delight. You are our true love. You are our true husband. Indeed, you have married us unto yourself by the marvelous grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has bound us unto himself as a husband to his bride. Lord, how we thank you for this redeeming love, for this marvelous everlasting love, for this stream of living water, for this refreshing mercy, grace, and peace. Pray, Lord, that you will comfort our hearts with this marvelous gospel message, with this eschatology that we already understand because of Good Friday and of Easter Sunday. We thank you in the name of Jeremiah's Savior, Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.